Hey everyone, it's Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. I'm lucky enough to have both Ben as well as Michael, who's from The Red Line, come on to talk about what's happening in Kazakhstan. Michael is a journalist and he is from the geopolitical think tank called The Red Line. He's reported on countries including Iran, Russia, Belarus, as well as Kazakhstan. And he has worked with people all the way from the White House to the Taliban. So he is just a wealth of knowledge on this subject. And we dive into everything from the history of Kazakhstan to the current situation, especially now that Russia is getting more involved with regards to the CTSO. We're also also going to talk about energy markets, both oil and uranium, as well as crypto. <laughs> so the impact that this will have on crypto, a lot of miners moved from China to Kazakhstan, the impact that that had on their infrastructure and the impact that this could have on crypto markets moving forward. We also talk about how this could impact other countries because we are seeing increased energy crises across the world. Once again, this is not speculation, but analysis. And I think it's so important to really dive deep into these countries that don't get the attention, honestly, that they deserve. Kazakhstan is a huge core component of the energy markets. It's really important to dive deep into the very rich history of the nation as well as the current state of affairs. Thanks so much for listening. No one pays attention to this world, this region that holds the fourth largest gas reserves in the world, that holds the ability to make India energy independent, that holds the connecting points between China and Europe, that effectively can destabilize the middle of Russia if things go wrong, that connects the, the old, old Silk Road routes with the Middle East. No one pays any attention. It's, it's the most complicated, weird story. It's weird to see everyone trying to understand Kazakhstan because no one's been paying any attention to it for so long now. Obviously, like protests themselves are so complex. So why is this happening? Because <laughs> I know there's a lot of different reasons because of that. Obviously, Kazakhstan is an incredibly complicated country, a country I've spent a good chunk of time in over the years. And I, I do stress that Kazakhstan are the nicest people in the world. So it's been a real shame to see what's happening over the last few years. years. To take it back to kind of understand how we got to this point, because you know everyone's putting it to this fuel protest but it's much deeper than that. We have to go back effectively 20, you know, 20, 30 years to the end of the Soviet Union. And last week was the 30-year anniversary of Kazakhstan's independence. Tensions are already high. When Kazakhstan got its independence, a guy named Nusrata Nazarbayev became the the president of Kazakhstan. He was the leader of the Kazakh Communist Party. So effectively, nothing changed. This guy was president until 2019, uh, which is a phenomenal amount of time. <laughs> um, right. Nothing, not much changed in the country. Obviously, they, they liberalized a bit. They started to get off the ground. But you know, this man had been in power. And even in 2019, when he left under very big protests, as he walked out the door, he renamed the capital to his first name and also gave himself the title of you know father of the country, I guess is the best translation for it. As much as he's left, he handpicked this guy, Bakayev, who's the current president. So everyone knew it was a continuation of, of you know politics as it is. You know, these Nurotan party remained in power and effectively he left the presidency, but remained the chair of the security council and the economic council and all the really important, you know, as well as he gave himself veto powers on any government appointments, which means he gets to pick, you know, effectively who's the head of the Kazakh banks, who's the head of the Kazakh treasuries, all these kind of stuff. So he's still, you know, and there's a lot of resentment that this man who left under protest is still effectively running Kazakhstan from pulling the strings behind, you know, he's the wizard of Oz kind of guy. Now, Put on this, the Kazakhs have had a huge power problems over the last few years. And this is particularly coming into a nasty cold winter uh, and the power situation has got much worse. So there's been rolling blackouts through the country and this is somewhat self-inflicted. So effectively, the gas price is so high in Europe at the moment 
that Kazakh oligarchs are effectively selling all their gas off to Europe going, well, we don't mind if our people have rolling blackouts because we're making so much money selling it off to Europe. And they moved a lot of their, their power consumption to coal, which coal is if to not get into the real deeps of coal, but effectively it, it's not good at spiking. You know, coal is kind of, you run it at the same, same amount the whole time. So it meant that when everyone turns their, their heater on, when they get back from work, boom, the power grid goes off and everyone goes into negative 40 with no heating. And this is the, the sort of backdrop on an on a energy grid that keeps failing, keeps going into problems. And then about a few months ago, the Chinese effectively finally clamped down and got rid of Bitcoin mining because it was causing such energy problems in, in China. And all they did is they picked up and moved to Kazakhstan, where, cut, where power is very cheap. This power grid that was kind of already teetering at the best of times had 8% added to it over just the space of about six weeks which just broke the power grid. So we're going into these protests with you know, resentment against Nazarbayev, resentment against the Kiev, just a slew of ministers resigning. I think we're up to our eighth minister of health in the last year and a half. Like there is just this rotating cast of, of ministers coming in and out. And then on top of that, there's just the price of everything's going up. The inflation is, is hitting the country and people's wages are very stagnant in Kazakhstan at the moment. And all the good bits of the country, the gas is being sold off to keep a lot of oligarchs very rich. You know, most Kazakh oligarchs have houses in London uh, and We'll get into the protests later, but it's it's amazing to see how quickly a lot of these oligarchs have got on private planes and left to London in the last couple of days. Right Now we come to January 1st, where effectively there was a cap on LPG prices because of the fact that in Kazakhstan, you have to drive a long way everywhere. Uh, and anyone from Texas will kind of get what that's like. Living in Australia, I get what that's like as well. LPG is, is quite often used. And effectively, they took the cap, the price cap off it, and it doubled overnight. And obviously, with LPG doubling, then everything else doubles, and it just combats and bats and bats. And this was coming up on the 10-year anniversary of a protest in this same region of Kazakhstan, the West, where people demanded higher wages, and they shot them. So already we're going into an, you know, just a powder keg on a powder keg on a powder keg. Effectively, protests started in Zhenazel, which is effectively in the sort of southwest of the country, and then spread from there. There is a lot of discontent. People are not particularly happy. And effectively, protesters kicked off in Almaty, which is the biggest city, but not the capital. Again, if you're American, you more than know that one as well. Police opened fire. A couple of guys got killed. And from there, it just ramped up. What was started out as fuel protests ended up turning into anti-government protests because people are just sick of effectively no change. And there is no opposition in Kazakhstan. No side is particularly happy. So they've effectively been giving no concessions to the people. So they effectively just keep sending cheap gas away. They keep effectively doubling down on the inflation, whilst at the same time trying to de-russify the economy and de-russify the nations, moving away from Cyrillic, you know, trying to bring Kazakh back as a language, which is effectively, you're pissing off the Russians, you're pissing off the Kazakhs. It's just, it's, it's a nonsense on everyone. And this is the sort of powder keg we've headed into the last few days with. The protests kick off and they get much worse. And Tokayev says, look, this government will not fall. We will talk to the protesters. And then two hours later, the entire government resigns, which obviously makes him look really weak because it go, you know, obviously he didn't even know what his own government was doing, which right. again, just spoke, uh, sparked the protesters. And we started seeing things like Nazarbayev's statue being pulled down because Nazarbayev is everywhere in the country. You know, there's statues of him all over the place. Effectively, anywhere there was a Lenin statue, they just added 40 pounds and called it a Nazarbayev statue, which is probably the worst joke <laughs> of ever. This is the sort of situation we're heading into at the moment where there's this anti-Nazarbayev sentiment because his kids are really rich. You know, the problems of, even you know, when Bitcoin mining has been a problem, you know, people go, well, let's get rid of them like the Chinese did. And then find out that Kazakh officials were using the power grids to mine Bitcoin. And it's like, 
my God, it's there's corruption right up the up the sphere at the moment. And there's some fantastic books written by some fantastic people on, on corruption in Kazakhstan. So I can, you know, you can give a 10 hour lecture on that. But effectively, this is the, the powder keg we've headed into where we are 10 year anniversary of effectively shooting a bunch of people who demanded fair wages. The price of petrol jumping up when wages are low and inflation is high. A hot, you know, watching Nazarbayev still pull all the strings, even though that he was removed from power two years ago. You know, watching his political party stagnate, watching this rotating cast of of ministers, where it's you know, it is just got to the point where no one even has any idea what's going on. Watching China buy up all of the real estate and all of the essential services, and there is a lot of sinophobia in in Kazakhstan as well, so that particularly scares them. You know. It's just been a powder keg and a powder keg and a powder keg. And this is why, you know, what started as a fuel protest has effectively ended up in an anti-government protest. Although what we have seen over the last few hours is the CTSO, which is this, imagine like the diet, you know, it's the Pepsi to, if, if NATO was Coke, then the CTSO is Pepsi, uh, which is, you know, it, it's good, but yeah, it, is Pepsi okay? I guess it is. It's not, it's effectively what Kazakhstan, Belarus, Armenia, Russia uh, and uh, Kyrgyzstan and, Kaz- and Tajikistan. Effectively, that's where we are. That the CTSO has been called in because Russia doesn't want to send troops in by itself because there's that, that they don't want to be seen to be doing a Hungary 1956 where they send troops in. They want to be this coalition of nations, which is why you're seeing a lot of Armenians helping out and Belarusians helping out, and because they want to make it seem like it's a bunch of friendly nations coming to make sure the house doesn't burn down. But effectively, it's to keep everything in check. Because Russia's in a really weird point at the moment where, what, we have a couple of days now until Biden meets with Putin. Ukraine is obviously at the top of everyone's mind. And now there's problems with what Russia has always viewed as their most solid ally, which is Kazakhstan. This has now complicated things a lot for Russia. And I don't think Russia saw this coming. This seems like it's taken the Kremlin by, by complete surprise, which is now... Putin's going into this meeting, having to effectively defend going, yeah, no, Russia has control of everything. Just ignore the two house fires we have in here. And that's a real, that is going to affect the meetings coming up. Yeah. So by calling in the CTSO, now people are saying that it's now the situation is about Putin and Russia. So rather than being about like the protests and all the attention is going to shift to like Russia and like how Putin is going to respond. Do you agree with that? Like, do you think by calling in the CTSO that this has become how Russia is going to respond to Kazakhstan? It's a bit of a two, it's a two-edged sword that for the sort of, I'm going to give you both sides of the argument here, which is the most red line statement I've ever, I've ever heard in my life. On one side, there is no opposition in Kazakhstan. There, because there's been no political discourse in Kazakhstan for so long, there is no one in the wings that can take over. Like it's the Kiev and then the next person below him is like, no one would have ever heard of him. Effectively, if you were to remove to Kiev, then there would be a ginormous power vacuum and it would be all these kind of, you know, guys with six or 7,000 followers who would be competing for the presidency. And that's just chaotic. And no one wants that for, not only the Russians don't want that, but the Central Asians, you know, Kazakhstan is the big brother of the Central Asian republics. It's the most rich, it's the most well put together. It's the big brother that went off and got an accounting degree. And that's kind of a problem for everyone else going, well, let's make sure that Kazakhstan doesn't fall apart. Let's make sure Tokayev stays where he is. And the CTSO can guarantee that Tokayev will stay where he is. On the other hand, there's been a lot of de-russification. Kazakhs want to build their own identity. They want to use their own. A lot of people coming back and using the Kazakh language again. There's a, People are starting to switch from Cyrillic to 
Latin alphabets. If you go, if you hang out, particularly the, the major cities, you know, Astana, Shimken, Taraz, and, and Amati, you know, people tend to speak a bit of English now. Things are starting to sort of open up to the rest of the world. Kazakhstan is not this backwater that it once was. There's that kind of, yeah, we'd love to see political discourse open up, but if we have a power vacuum, we have no idea who steps into that power vacuum. And if right. Kazakhstan goes, then that's Kazakhstan is effectively the one holding all the other Central Asian republics. It's Putin and, and even the Central Asians will be looking at this going, yes, can we all just make sure the Kyan stays there and this thing doesn't fall into pieces? That kind of ties into my question here. So this is, you know, the third anti-authoritarian rebellion or protest in seven years uh, that's on Russia's border, mm-hmm. right? And Russia mm-hmm. obviously has to be taking notice. They'll publicly scoff and say these people are CIA Western, you know, puppeteers, but- Which they give the CIA, CIA far too much credit, but sure. Right. So like how closely- <laughs> Is the Kremlin looking at the cause of these uh, rebellions? And are they looking at addressing the causes to ensure it doesn't happen in Russia? Or are they looking more at how to put them down effectively? It's a combination of both. So it's seeing what you what little what concessions you can give to stop this happening. So Russia will be now looking at this and going, okay, we shouldn't take fuel caps off either. Because Russia has, you know, subsidized a lot of the fuel industry as well. They don't want another one of these on their hands either. But at the same time, this has been long burning and effectively by now they probably should have looked at getting someone in place if they're like get an opposition get democracy kind of going in kazakhstan but then if you speak to a kazakh person they go look at the five central asian republics one of them is a true democracy that's kyrgyzstan and they go through a coup they have elections all you know every three years they do parliamentary and presidential elections but they also have a coup every five years like every five years the country just has a explodes and they go well the other four central asian republics are really stable because there's no discourse but they're really stable why would we want to meddle with that democracy nonsense again i'm just giving you what you what you right. hear in some bars in almighty and this is the kind of conundrum for a lot of these people going well do we want a kyrgyzstan mm, maybe not even though kyrgyzstan is lovely as well but that's a whole other kettle of fish the right. The interesting thing will be to see that now that the government has resigned, all of the sort of, the, particularly the sort of head of the, the kind of KGB would be the best way I could sort of give it for a Western audience, has also resigned. And he was, Nazarbayev's in, he knows where all the bodies are buried. He's resigned and he can be replaced now. So Takayev, who's effectively been this puppet that Nazarbayev just, you know, controls and runs and, and tells him what to do. Now that the cabinet's resigned, he can probably put the Kayev loyalists in if he really wanted to. So we may actually see the Kayev breaking off the strings and being able to form his own sort of government. But we now have almost no idea who controls the Kayev because if it's not Nazarbayev, then who is it? You know, if it's effectively when Frank Hollis leaves Kermit and someone else puts their hand in Kermit, who controls Kermit then? This is, you know, a very bad analogy, but it kind of <laughs> demonstrates that Takayev has not really had his own thoughts in quite a while now. He's been very much a, a mouthpiece for the Nazarbayev government and the Nazarbayev family because the Nazarbayev family, they're like the ambassadors to everywhere and they're always at the head of banks. And Nazarbayev is, is particularly notorious for doing things like when Ablazyov was running BTB Bank, which is kind of the biggest bank in Kazakhstan, you know, he would, Nazarbayev would rock up and say, give me 15% of the bank as a personal a gift or I will seize it by you know, seize it by, um, with the army and effectively imprison your entire family. Nazarbayev is particularly rich, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. again, it, but again, it's Central Asia and it's par for the course. You know, I think the really a good example I always point to when I try and explain corruption in Central Asia is the president of Tajikistan earns thirteen thousand US a year. That's his official salary. It's less than a McDonald's worker in Moscow. 
yet he's worth just under a billion dollars, which either he's the best investor of all time, or there might be some corruption in Central Asia. <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> just a little bit. Yes, that's that's it'd be an optimistic person. And I, I usually am an optimistic person as much as I sound very depressed when I usually talk. Getting rid of this cabinet means that Takayev may actually be able to spread his wings and, and form his own identity going into this. But at the same time, a lot of the, you know, this is the elected officials are now gone, but all the oligarchs, so all the guys who are the head of the oil companies and the telecommunications companies and the internet companies and the shopping malls and everything else are all still Nazarbayev loyalists. Even if he brings in a whole new sector of government, he'll still need the oil companies and the banks and everything else to get behind him. And those are still Nazarbayev loyalists. Would, would the Cossacks want him in office? I, I mean, I know that one of the demands seems to be a regime change and being able to vote for local administration. It seems like that would be counterproductive for them to, to want him or is it not? matter it's i think they'd like to see someone else come in they'd like to see a brand new you know complete new administration but at the same time there is no one ready to go we're talking elections here where it's like 80 percent, and the next highest is six like there's just no one there is no opposition in kazakhstan for russia you know the opposition are also pro-russia so it doesn't really matter to them but it just forms a giant power vacuum where all these tiny little parties that get four or six percent and even the communist guys who will get you know four or five percent? They'll be vying for power, and it's sort of that's such a flipping of the board. Let's see what happens. That I don't think anyone wants to roll those dice at the moment. But we might see someone rise up and, and take authority and rise out of it, like we you know like we've seen with Jepartov in uh, in Kyrgyzstan, or we saw with Zelensky coming out of nowhere in Ukraine. But we're much more like if if I were a, if I were a betting man. Uh, I would say we're going to end up with a much more Lukashenko-like scenario where a lot of the cabinet resigns, but Lukashenko stays in place and he's forced to turn further toward Russia to make sure he stays in position. Right. And so, you know, kind of circle back uh, to a thing you said earlier about how it's just the timing is particularly awkward for Putin right now because he's supposed mm. to be meeting with Biden and the West in next week. And, mm. you know, he was hoping to renegotiate a lot of Cold War era deals and stuff regarding Ukraine. How does this impact that? And in addition to that, does this kind of kill its pressure on Ukraine and the West entirely? I've been, I've been saying for a long time that this isn't an invasion of Ukraine. We're not seeing any of the signs that would you know, indicate an invasion of Ukraine. It's effectively, all they've done is move a bunch of operations, like training exercises that would have been out near, funnily enough, near Kazakhstan and shifted them off to Ukraine. And all of a sudden they get all this, everyone, they're back in the back in the news. Russia, again, has had multiple people call it, a, it's, a, it's a gas station with nukes. So again, really awful tonight. And they're trying, but they're trying to get their geopolitical relevance back. They want people to talk about Russia. They want to effectively appeal to mostly Middle Eastern nations who, as the US pulls out, these nations go, well, we need a, a big partner to work with who will protect us and defend us at the UN and be able to supply us with arms and guns and money and everything else we need. And Russia wants to pitch itself as, hey, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a big player. Let me back in. And by doing these small operations near the Ukrainian border, like effectively now Putin is meeting with Biden on equal ground, even though that Russia's GDP is the same size as Australia's. And as much as I am an Australian, no one gives an absolute, no one cares what we do foreign policy wise. <laughs> I don't, I don't think Biden's, you know, sitting up at night going, Oh, I wonder what Australia is going to do. No, no one cares. GDP is just not that high. We don't have nukes though. We have lots of spiders, but no nukes. So that's, that's effectively where we're, where we're sitting at the moment that Russia is 
coming into this deal as what they feel is equals. You know, it'd be really good for the press, for the Russian press particularly, to show Biden and, and Putin on equal ground, shaking hands and going, look, it's it's just like the Cold War. You know, we were the other superpower. Ignore China. We're the other superpower. Going into this, this is weakened disposition because now it's shown that the Russia, the, what was always seen as the most solid Soviet, you know, ex-Soviet pro-Russian nation and now has instability instability in it. And to give you an idea on how solidly yeah, pro-Russia they were, when Russia left the Soviet Union, there was about three days ago where Kazakhstan was the Soviet Union because they didn't want to leave. They effectively became the Soviet Union for three days and everyone went, okay, well, we've done all these deals with the Soviet Union. What happens when Kazakhstan is the Soviet Union? They're very Russified. So there's obviously a lot of panic now going, okay, well, if the most solid Russian partner isn't so solid, how solid is the rest of the CTSO part, uh, CTSO country? And I just have one more question. And then Kyle, if you mm-hmm. want to get in on energy. So China's really only been involved in Kazakhstan in economic way, right? What are the odds that they start flexing muscle here if things start rapidly deteriorating in the country? China are very involved in Kazakhstan in lots of security measures as well. So uh, they buy up a lot of the infrastructure as well as they do a lot of security stuff in, in Kazakhstan, particularly on the border with Xinjiang. And they do actually get quite involved in the Kazakh economy. You know, most of the Kazakh gas will head into the Chinese markets uh, or head into the European markets. But the moment you go into European markets, you now have to deal with effectively going through Russia. So China has been pumping lots and lots of money into Kazakhstan because they want a strong and stable Kazakhstan because they worry that, you know, instability and people weren't treated so nice. You know, hmm, I wonder if there's a region of China nearby that might kind of feel similar. Hmm. Mm. Um, hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Interesting. <laughs> there's a, there is a vested interest in Beijing to make sure Kazakhstan stays solid. They're very happy with keeping the same government at all times. You know, they want to sign 20-year deals knowing that Nazarbayev Jr. will make sure those deals come and, and come to fruition. This is obviously send some panic in, into Beijing, but it's not Beijing's place to go in. This is a CTSO issue. They'll definitely be seeing economics. They'll be giving a lot of intelligence sharing, and particularly the fact that WeChat is quite heavily used, and particularly the east of Kazakhstan. They'll be giving all of the WeChat data to, to the uh, Kazakh security services to try and get ahead of the protests and effectively get ahead of what's happening. This is a CTSO issue. China doesn't want to get in the way of Russia. Already, China is doing operations with the Russians in Tajikistan, and that's mostly due with Afghanistan stuff. That's been messy as. Uh, they've been not great. Why would they walk into Kazakhstan when A, that would annoy the Russians, B, it gets rid of the narrative that's a CTSO issue, and C, <laughs> there's a lot of xenophobia in Kazakhstan. Um, the Kazakhs would likely push back much harder if if the Chinese walked in. Whereas most Kazakhs get along with Russians quite well. And when it comes to the sort of very north of Kazakhstan, particularly in um, you know guys like uh, like Seme, some of those towns are 80, 90% Russian. So Russia coming in is probably much better for the narrative than China walking in. Um, yeah. So going a little bit deeper on the China situation. So China loves uranium, right? Because it's because nuclear power um, and Kazakhstan produces 43% of the world's uranium. So do you think that China will be more reactive uh, because of mm. that? Or do you still think it's going to be like this baseline response? Like, okay, we're going to back out CTSO. We'll have to take care mm. of this. China's very big on, they'll make things work behind the table. 
uh, but they don't want to be very overt about this because again, Chinese troops walking through Almaty, effectively, you're just saying, hey, you know what would be good at putting this fire at? Petrol. It's not going to be great if China does that. So China will obviously be calling all of the mining oligarchs, mining companies and guys they've done deals with and saying, hey, have you got this under control? And they'll be talking to Russia and saying, hey, you know, uh, so uranium mines are looking a bit sketchy. Can you make sure there's a battalion down there? You know, they'll be working with Moscow and making sure everything stays stable. But again, we're not at the point where it's looking like a like everything's up, up like upending. We're at a point where there have probably been a resignation of government, but the Kiev is still in power and we look like we may be able to save the situation. Russia and China may be able to save the situation. So it's not at panic stations yet for Beijing, uh, but they will be keeping an eye on it, but they won't be the ones to walk in because again, there's a large amount of Sinophobia in, in Kazakhstan. And so I guess like with the energy, because I think Kazakhstan is, you know, a core component of the energy markets that we don't probably give enough credit to. So in your eyes, it seems like, you know, Russia will come in and stabilize everything, especially oil, because that could probably up in markets like you're already seeing energy stocks react because of this news. Mm. But do you think like things will stabilize or do you see a worst case scenario playing out because of what's going on? I think it's will stabilizing. So far, the last few hours have been fairly positive. Obviously, Armadi's still on fire at the moment. Mungastyle's still in protests and we've but we haven't seen, we started to see some last night, we saw some police and armed army forces joining the protesters, which is usually that's the first sign that, okay, buckle in fellas, we're in for it. But that seems to be very small scale. Just like there was reports of workers' councils forming. And again, seems very small scale. Again, it's very hard to get stuff out of Kazakhstan at the moment because they've been shutting down the internet in lots of places. So effectively, we're having to call friends and use lots of weird chat <laughs> chat rooms to try and get stuff from on the ground. Some Twitter and everything, but it's sparks sparse, I guess the best way to put it. The Russians, this will be a temporary blip in the gas market if things continue to de-escalate because Europe has been you know, buying up a lot of this Kazakh gas, but it will change the gas market in, in some ways because now the very start of this piece, they've been selling off this gas, you know, to effectively the Europeans and the Russians and the Kyrgyz because they'll pay more for it than the Kazakh population. The Kazakh population is only willing to pay probably somewhere around 40 tenge for, you know, for gas, whereas, you know, they can probably get 140 to 250 tenge in Europe. This will hurt the oligarchs if they have to effectively subsidize gas and make sure that everyone in Kazakhstan actually has you know heating during the negative 40 bits. But that's probably what's required at the moment. Um, there was a quote from somebody saying that one of the frustrations was like, oh, we could have been Dubai and mm. that like, all the oligarchs sucked up everything. Like, do you think mm -hmm. there's ever a situation where <laughs> that can evolve, like Kazakhstan can become an element of Dubai? Or do you think the power structure is in place kind of prevent that? From the, from the people from prospering. When the Soviet Union broke down, effectively everyone was supposed to get these vouchers that everyone could have like a little piece of the big companies. But obviously there was so little food and fuel and everything around that the rich and the oligarchs just went to families and said, give me your shares and I'll give you eight loaves of bread. When you're starving, you go, yeah, okay, I'll take the bread. And they consolidated their power. Most of Kazakhstan's major industries are concentrated in just a few families. So it makes it really difficult to effectively you know, innovate, to build up, because why would they want to be competitive when they effectively, I wonder if I can get a good price off that. It's my brother who runs the company. Like it's, it's a bit, you know, there's been a lot of stagnation in technology. People are investing the bare minimum and there's a lot of corruption where they'll, the Kazakh government will give, you know, his brother a hundred million dollars to build a power station and he'll spend 20 million of it and then pocket the other 80. There's been just a dramatic amount of that. And effectively, anyone who could consolidate during that sort of the very first years of sort of 1991, 1992, their families are now filthy rich in Kazakhstan. Like, you know, 
yeah, there's a lot of these Central Asian nations. I go there and I'm like, I'm the rich man. And then I go to places in Almaty and in the Nur Sultan and I realize I'm a poor man. <laughs> and more Jeeps than you'd ever imagine. But anyway, whole other thing. That's been the problem. They could have been Dubai because they've got so much uranium and gas and oil and a relatively small population, but they also are landlocked, which is the other big one. You know, if you're Kazakhstan, you have effectively either to send your gas up into Russia, to which Russia is then going to take a cut, uh, and then Russia can either flood the market with all more of their gas or, you know, stop your gas. You've got China who will buy up lots of your gas, but China will always want to drive the price down. And effectively to go south, you've got Turkmenistan, which has the fourth largest gas reserves in the world. So they're not going to buy your gas. Uh, and the only other way is through the Caspian. Uh, and then effectively you've got, you know, Russia on the other side of the Caspian for the, for the Kazakhs. Even you can get down to the Azeris and, you know, they've just got a bunch of gas as well. So they're not in any mood to take Kazakh gas. It's like buying, you know, having one of these, uh, I'm trying to think of a really analogy for it. It would be like doing those, you know, those famous 90s things where you can buy everything you can in the store in 60 seconds, but having to catch the bus home. It's like, how do you, you have everything you need, but how do you get it there? And that's the major problem for these Central Asian republics, that they are reliant on either Russia, Chi Russia or China to effectively either accept them their what they want or transit it for them. Because the only other way is south, and that's going through Afghanistan, and no one's particularly interested in building a, investing billions of dollars in pipelines in Afghanistan at the moment. So I guess it, that kind of branches off, though. So Afghanistan, it is part of Central Asia. Are the Taliban meeting with these other Central Asian countries about Kazakhstan. Do they really have any say or anything that goes on with this? It's, it's an interesting question. So to sort of go over really, really briefly, but the Taliban have been effectively doing lots of coordination, having lots of meetings with all of the Central Asian republics, apart from Tajikistan. Uh, Tajikistan really hates the Taliban. And it's because the previous government, to, you know, I'm not going to get too far down this rabbit hole, but the previous government was quite a lot ethnic Tajiks. Uh, and now the Taliban are mostly ethnic Pashtuns. So effectively, all the Tajiks that were in power have now been forced out. Tajikistan is not particularly happy because he's obviously Tajik nationalist. Anyway, the Taliban will put a statement in about this, but they know that they've got, you know, their house is on fire. Your house is on fire. You don't really go to help, you help your neighbor looking for his lost dog. Um, and that's where Afghanistan will be on this. So this will be much more about the Uzbeks, the Turkish as well. The Kyrgyz are very interested because obviously Almaty is what a three hour drive from Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan uh, and the Uzbeks as well, who are the largest by population in the region. Those three particularly will be having lots and lots of meetings at the moment and sort of trying to figure this out. Turkmenistan will just hermit in and just do what they want to do. Tajikistan has got a whole bunch of other issues for itself and Afghanistan. Yeah. I'm sure they'll, they'll put a press statement out about it, but I don't think anything, someone will, someone in the state department will read it. That's about it. It's actually, it'll probably end up being me that reads it and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> So crypto lost like 12% of its hash rate because of the mm -hmm. grid going down in um, mm -hmm. Kazakhstan. And it seems like crypto as an industry kind of relies on like cheap electricity. And mm -hmm. if these countries keep on erupting, what do you see the sustainability of the industry as? Like they kind of rely on really cheap electricity and countries that might not be like stable or might not be able to support it. You know, the grid in Kazakhstan was, you know, tragically underinvested in. So how do you, how do you mm -hmm. see that like the crypto industry having to deal with this? So crypto effectively, you know, Obviously, different cryptocurrencies require more or less power. Bitcoin particularly needs lots and lots of power, uh, lots and lots of computing power, uh, and tends to actually make a lot of heat as well. You tend to any countries with cheap electricity that are very cold and have 
somewhat lenient regulations is the nicest way I can probably put that. So you're finding crypto guys popping up in in areas of Russia that have you know uh, refineries. So they built specialized power plants for them effectively, and they'll piggyback off those. So guys like Norilsk is starting to see crypto pop up quite a lot because it's in the Arctic. It's cold. Cheap power is cheap. There's a dedicated power grid right there for them, but is it sustainable as there's as more and more people get into mining it gets there's less and less you know it becomes more and more computer intensive and it's an exponential cycle on on you needing more you know as this as more people start mining you need more miners to effectively get the same amount out and it just keeps ratcheting up and up and up those guys that tick all those boxes being very cheap power low regulations and at the same time cold is not that many options for crypto miners this will be worrying them because now effectively they're being pushed into you know china's just banned it kazakhstan's out the rest of the central asians have a pretty shocking power grid as well at this point now you've got what russia and maybe georgia but i'm even then pretty skeptical and the fact that i can't think of anyone off the top of my head maybe mongolia is the only other place i can think but their power grid's pretty shocking as well i was just um curious because i you know like bitcoin requires proof of work an element of centralization. and this is not what this is about but like the element of centralization risk that comes from relying on those electricity grids i think are an underpriced risk to the crypto mm. market yeah so Hugely. And as you very rightly put it out, this was such a big thing in China and China was such a big part of this. And with that disappearing over a very short space of time, they all scrambled. And now they're probably going to have to scramble again, because even if we can get everything under control, there's going to be a lot more people probably poking around going, well, let's get these rolling blackouts under control, because I think people are starting to be miffed with being negative 40 and I don't even have a heating on. Yeah. That that is, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, a pretty good reason point. to be miffed. You know, I I would I would complain. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, so I so I have another circle back to way earlier in the discussion mm-hmm. talking about how Russia wants this coalition, so it doesn't look like you know they're trying yeah. to uh, acquire more land or find you know more places that just so happen to have Russian rebels in them. And so, is there a fear? You know, because Russia does have this habit of sending peacekeepers somewhere and then they establish a permanent presence. Is there a fear that Russia could be trying to do that um, in Kazakhstan? Maybe not annex, but perhaps uh, establish a permanent presence in the region. Russia's actually been pretty good with peacekeeping operations for a while now. You know, they we saw their peacekeeping operations quite successfully in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. We saw Russian peacekeepers quite successfully defuse Transnistria when that conflict kicked off. We've seen Russian peacekeepers getting involved in in Fergana Valley conflicts between Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. We're seeing Russian peacekeepers operating every single day in Tajikistan at the moment along the Afghan border. So Russia's actually been a pretty decent set of peacekeepers for the for the most part. Right. Because they can deploy quickly, they you know the lingua franca of the read, which is kind of the, the backup language everyone speaks, is Russian in this region of the world. Particularly, the command structures will all speak Russian. Most people in Central Asia have all been to Russia. They all have good relations with Russia. They all see they all have favorable views of Russia. So it's very different to you know if you know. God forbid, let's say Maine was having a big breakaway, you'd feel much more comfortable with Canada sending peacekeepers than you would with China sending peacekeepers. Right. You know. And Russia is kind of viewed, you know, not always, not by everyone, but as a general rule of thumb, Russia gets a lot more friendliness from these Central Asians than than an American or a Chinese force would. And peacekeeping wise, they don't tend, they tend to only be permanent if they're requested to be permanent. But you'll find that a lot of these guys have very little budget to work with and they would all look at it as, hey, if the Russians want to do the peacekeeping operations, that saves me a bunch of money to actually peacekeep myself, right. which is the case in Tajikistan and Armenia at this point. It's not as 
nefarious. You know, if we were to see Russian peacekeepers, for instance, really concentrating in the Russian majority areas along the northern border, that would be different. That would be a okay, they're getting ready for an annexation or they're getting ready for a maybe that, you know, these these areas in the north should pull away and join Russia. But we haven't seen that yet. We've seen mostly Russians rocking up and defending, defending power grids, defending major cities, uh, do, kind of taking over police work. And we haven't seen them rocking in with really heavy machinery yet. It's mostly APCs, which is a lot better sign. You know, if you're rolling in with full tanks, you're expecting resistance from the Kazakh army, whereas now they're rolling in with effectively riot control gear. Again, I'm not saying I'm, I want Russian peacekeepers coming everywhere because I've drank with those right. guys and I would die if I drank with them every night. I don't really want them rolling down my street anytime soon. But out of all the options on the table at the moment, it's probably the one that's most stable. That's good. And again, it's- geopolitics geopolitics is never what's a good scenario and what's a bad right. scenario. It's always like, all these cards are terrible and which one's the probably the best for what we have in front of us. That's the card Russia will Russia is at the moment. No, you're absolutely right. My last question here is... Russia and China, they border Kazakhstan. So, you know, they have a say in it. But Iran and India would be the other two cornerstones of that Central Asian region, I guess, from top to bottom, right? And so do they have, I mean, I assume they don't really have a say in what goes on here, but are they doing anything in regards to the situation? The one who actually has a lot more say is Turkey. Most of these guys are Turkic nations. So someone from Turkmenistan or someone who speaks Kazakh can kind of understand Turkish. You know, it's it's kind of like an Englishman can almost understand a drunk Irishman. And that's, again, another terrible analogy, <laughs> but it's that, you know, almost, yeah, I'm getting about 80% of what you're saying here. So there is a good relationship between the Turkic nations and Turkey. India is looking at it as energy. So India would love, and they really, really want pipelines coming in from Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan into India. But obviously Afghanistan is the issue right now because no one wants to build a pipeline in Afghanistan. Iran right now is, yeah, they do a bit of outreach, but again, they're the wrong type of Muslims is what Iran will tell you. And frankly, they've got enough problems at home. They're mostly focusing into the Middle East. Central Asia is much harder to crack and they don't have the foreign capital to be able to you know, splash around. Iran effectively has to decide, is it, you know, I've only got this amount of money. Do I want to throw that at Syria and Iraq and Lebanon? Or do I want to throw it into Central Asia where I'm competing against China and Russia and Russia is very entrenched. It's not worth the investment. I'm sure they love to, and they do have good relations. And you'll see a lot of Iranians who will go to Kazakhstan, a lot of particularly engineers, uh, a lot of Iranian engineers will go and work in Kazakhstan. You wouldn't worry about what Iran's policy towards Kazakhstan is. It, it's it's a sideshow. Russia is definitely the, the old hand in the region uh, and they have better relations with most of the leaderships and they have better relations with most of the people who are more positive towards Russia, particularly when you guys have guys like Tajikistan where 70% of their economy, or just under, comes from people, Tajik men going to Russia, working and sending the money home. Like that's a huge amount of that economy that relies on Russia. Russia is very important to the region. China is the, the rich stepdad who comes in the region. You don't really like him, but he's buying you a lot of new toys at the moment <laughs> that's kind of what russia china has been doing in the region uh, and they you know you're not my real dad but yeah i really do like the new roads which is nice effectively that's where we're at at the moment so india is more interested in energy and they'd love to get it off the ground but that requires in a stable afghanistan iran doesn't have the cash they're focused towards the middle east turkey actually is involved but is still a very junior player as compared to beijing or moscow yeah, my, my final question would be about energy markets of course this all began because of lpg like you know lifting price controls and lpg because we're just seeing energy crisis 
pop up all over, you know, Europe is just absolutely going through it right now. Mm -hmm. Do you see more things like this happening where it's like, we relied on the government to do this. And then one day the government isn't able to deliver energy because we haven't made the green energy transition fast enough. We don't have enough storage, like whatever it ends up being like, do you, how do you see this? You know, it all began with an energy problem kind of compounding over time. You would kind of look at the same way and go, did shooting Arch Franz Ferdinand, uh, did shooting Archduke Franz Ferdinand start World War One? Kind of, but it, not really. Like him being shot just set off a powder keg. This protest on LPG just set off the powder keg. It was just the, it was the match. It wasn't the actual gunpowder here. Yes. Energy crisis is something that desperately affects politics in particularly these colder nations because people notice it, you know, even with energy prices high at the moment, and that's a macroeconomic trend that effectively was being booked in a year ago because most energy companies, particularly oil will effectively decide how much oil they're going to make a year in advance. And all the oil companies didn't think we were going to be out of the pandemic this fast. They've gone, yep, we'll make this much and we'll produce this much because we don't want a repeat of April last year. Because remember where that point where oil price was zero and they're just trying to give it away and everyone lost a bunch of money. They were going, okay, well, let's make this much. And then the demand's been here. There's already too high. You hear someone in tell you that Barden's put the price of petrols up, then no, 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 no. This is macroeconomics. You know, it's also affecting me and I drive a small car. Yes, this is just another symptom of, you know, problems in, in multiple countries. There's a lack of trust in government at the moment. There are stagnant wages around a lot of the places. A lot of people are having problems with power grids, particularly in Central Asia. Uh, and corruption is rampant. And we're seeing a lot of these quite tired administrations where they've been in for 30 years now with the same people, with the same guys doing the same thing, with the same people getting rich and the other everyone else getting poor. They're just throwing more gunpowder on it. And we don't know, you know, there are always protests in this region of the world. We don't know which one will be the one to break the camel's back. And we don't know how, if it's a Ukraine where everything changes, or if it's a Belarus where something's changed but the, the the general narrative stays the same perfect awesome. well that kind yeah. of Did that kind of wraps it up yeah go ahead and give all your stuff a shout out so people know where to follow you so effectively if you want to listen to me be far more depressed and serious you can check out the red line where we focus on one big geopolitical issue each fortnight with guests from the White House and Harvard and CIA and Oxford. Otherwise, you can check out I, my other job is working for the Oxford Society, which is a Central Asia-focused think tank. So if you want to read some really detailed reports and some great reporting from guys over there who are all far smarter than I am, you can read those for you know 800-page reports on Kazakh oil price, which again... I really love. <laughs> so again, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here. And if you want to hear more about Central Asia, it's an area that I think almost everyone overlooks because no one pays attention to this world that hold this region that holds the fourth largest gas reserves in the world, that holds the ability to make India energy independent, that holds the connecting points between China and Europe, that effectively can destabilize the middle of Russia if things go wrong, that connects the you know, the old, old Silk Road routes with the Middle East, yet no one pays any attention. So it's an area to watch. Uh, and if you want to check more stuff about it, I'm sure I will be mentioning Kazakhstan sometime again in the near future, sadly. Awesome. Wonderful. Thanks so much for well, thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you on soon again. Well, hopefully not, actually, because hopefully pandemonium does <laughs> not erupt. But, uh, right. Maybe, yeah, in peacetime. I'm, I'm, an omen of, I'm an omen of death. So thank you so much, Michael. And uh, perfect. Absolutely. Then, Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. I will be back and I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to leave any thoughts, comments, questions below, and I will see everybody soon. Bye.